You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to start talking about money. Discover more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her money comes to you through PRX. Hi, I'm Jean Chatsky, and welcome to the Her Money with Jean Chatsky podcast. And I say that very intentionally because when we were being very crafty and coming up with this podcast, we decided to do things like making Her Money one word and putting with Jean Chatsky in the title. And we're going to ask you, if you enjoy what you're hearing, to please subscribe to our podcast. But when you go to subscribe, you got to type in Her Money with Jean Chatsky, and Her Money has to be one word. Otherwise, I'm told that you will have a little bit of trouble finding it. We'll also tweet out and put on Facebook and my website all the different ways that you can get to the podcast so that you can subscribe and join us for all of our exciting conversations. And I, I was very, very excited for the one that I'm about to have. So you all know the Aflac Duck ad, and I am not doing my Aflac impression. Aflac! But how about the women who Aflac. invented him? Aflac. He is a him. I think he's a him. Aflac! Yes, he's a him. Yes, he's a him. When we last looked, it <laughs> was a him. All right. Okay. So Linda Kaplan-Thaler and Robin Koval, who ran their own advertising agency together for many, many years, are the women behind the duck and so many other campaigns. They've also written four best-selling books, including The Power of Nice and The Power of Small. But as they tell it, they are two girls from the Bronx who had no special advantages or privileges and rose up through hard work and sheer drive, and it inspired their latest book, which is called Grit to Great. Welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. So, Linda, what is grit? Well, you know, grit as we define it, and, you know, we're ad ladies, so, of course, we made it into an acronym. Uh, The composite would be G-R-I-T, guts, resilience, initiative and tenacity. These are the things that really are the indicators of success. And in fact, research has shown time and time again that that coveted it factor, which most people think you need to succeed, you know, a brilliant IQ, virtuoso talent, Ivy League creds, really don't amount to much. It is really not about having the it factor. It is about having the grit factor. 90% of people who are incredibly successful don't have the it factor, but they do have grit. Are, are you born with it, Robin, or do you grow into it? Well, the wonderful thing about grit is, you know, unlike uh, you, being born with incredible IQ or the abil- athletic ability, I mean, the things that we don't get to choose or, you know, how wealthy you are, or any of the things that are frankly not in our control, we are all born with grit. Those factors, uh, guts, resilience, initiative, tenacity. And the best thing about it is you can all, we can all get more of it. We can develop 
our grit. In fact, uh, we developed a bit of a test. You can take a grit quiz on our, uh, on our, we have it on our website, grittogrit.com, and you can see where you are on the grit scale. So what kind of questions would you ask me in this quiz? Well, we'd ask you, for instance, you know, are you the kind of person that takes on a task and stays committed to it? Do you have tenacity? Right. And understanding that about yourself and understanding that, hmm, sometimes maybe I do get distracted or I, I give up too easily is a way to monitor yourself and stay committed to things. Or when uh, am I afraid to be bored? Because boredom is actually something we avoid a lot, you yep. know, especially in this day and age when we have devices, you know, competing for our attention all the time. But being bored actually is one of the best things for developing your creativity. That's well, when you have all your great ideas. It reminds me of the stories that I've been reading in the New York Times on the boom in meditation, right? When, which is, I mean, I tried it. I, I was a little bored. I actually fell asleep. Um, don't tell anybody. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to do. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's it's very hard to do. I have my best ideas, not when I'm um, bored necessarily, but when I'm in the shower or when I'm out for a run. Well, it's interesting. One of the reasons you have Ideate in the shower, and we did this when we looked at a research, University of Mexico many years, actually did a study and found out that when hot water is hitting the top of your head, it increases blood flow, which increases all the dendrites moving around, and you are more creative in the no shower. Kidding. Yes, we even had a famous campaign with a woman in the shower who had lots of ideas, the herbal essence lady who went, yeah, Robin, you got to do it with me. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. She had so many great ideas, none of which we could talk about on the show. But, but you know, oh, but this the, is radio. You can talk about it. Oh, it's a podcast. It's free for all. But the point is that, uh, you know, there was a great article in the New York Times recently um, in one of the writings found from Einstein. He worked at a patent office and spent a lot of years being very bored. And he said, "I'm it's it's good. I can't do it with the German accent, but it's, he said, it's good that I had a lot of time to be bored. I think, I think more. And he said that he would lean back and think about about, oh, if this chair fell and there was no gravity, what would it feel like? And he said, really, the theory of relativity came out of being bored and daydreaming. And what we've learned is that when you're bored, your mind doesn't like a vacuum. So it's constantly trying to make new associations. And we, that's why it's important to be bored. We found this um, teacher, kindergarten teacher in Iceland, <laughs> and she actually teaches her little students to be bored. So she'll have these little boys. Um, there's actually a video of her. It's, it's charming. Little boys knitting. And they hate it, of course. And they tell, we're so bored, we're so bored. And she said, that's wonderful. You're learning how to be bored. Is there a difference between teaching um teaching somebody to be comfortable with being bored and teaching patience? Because I know patience is key in in developing your grit. Um, well, you know, they are two different things, right? Being bored is learning in some ways to let your mind be comfortable being, um, you know, not doing. Patience is that part of tenacity, right, um, where you have to stay committed to a task for a really long time. Um, you know, we all know the 10,000-hour rule that's been said. You need 10,000 hours to become a master in something. But that's very hard these days when, you know, we all have a little bit of, of ADD that we give ourselves. There are so many things competing for our attention. And I think also in the world of, you know, American Idol and The Voice and all these things, it looks like you can become a success overnight. And I think the culture 
gives us this expectation that if you haven't made it by the time, you know, you're 25, if you're not Mark Zuckerberg, then you're all washed up. But really, in, in most cases, it takes many, many years and a lot of dedication to become an expert. You know, it's an interesting story about Pablo Casals, arguably the world-renowned cellist and probably one of the best in 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 the world in, in the 20th century. And at 93 years of age, he was still practicing four hours a day, still practicing the cello. And a reporter asked him once, Mr. Casals, you really don't have to do this. Why are you still practicing? And he said, because I'm beginning to see some improvement. And he really understood that, you know, it is that whole thing about Buddhist. It's really the journey that's the the important thing. You can you can climb Everest with a toothpick, but you, you know it, it's that it's that getting there that ne- you know you never quite need to get to that plateau. You can always get higher. And what we talk about in the book is we have a lot of what we call grit builders, mm-hmm. little simple things that you can do to increase your stamina, to increase your perseverance, to increase your concentration. You you talk a lot in the book too about. And and we'll get to those grit builders because I want to leave people with some of these great exercises. But you talk about this concept of temporal discounting and, and how that gets in the way of meeting whatever goals you've set for yourself, whether it's um, going to the gym four days a week or saving for retirement. Yeah, we tend to really value what is happening right now. And something that's far off is very hard to imagine. And so what we talk about a lot in the book is the idea of, you know, if somebody's trying to save a lot of money, and I'm sure, and I know I've seen you talk about this too, to think about the small amounts you can save bit by bit. Because if you start thinking about what you need to save, it it becomes such a huge problem that it's insurmountable in many ways. Well, and you have to manage the impulses of life. As you're trying to achieve those big goals, whatever they are, so how do you how do you manage those Im- those day to day impulses, the the devices that you have in your hands, so that you can stay a little more future focused? Well, you know, one of the things, and this is one of the the grit builders in the book, is uh, you know we talk about you know the thirty second timeout. Um, because there are so many impulses and it's hard often to control them. But usually if you can take 30 seconds and we chose 30 seconds being an advertising that was sort of the time frame that's been most meaningful in our <laughs> lives. Uh, but if you take 30 seconds and before you walk into Starbucks and buy the $6 latte or before you, um, send that email that maybe you shouldn't send or any of those things that are hard to control, for the most part, you usually can distract yourself and find something else to do. Or, you know, even if it's um, uh, eating, you know, a cookie, right? You can go and have a conversation with somebody instead of eating the cookie. And then by the time you're done, you've forgotten about it. It's also a way of reframing things. I mean, research has shown that we really don't have willpower. And it certainly dies out by the afternoon. And we read an interesting study which said, you know, if, if you see somebody eating this chocolate mousse, you know, at a restaurant, and you really want that chocolate mousse, but you're really trying to lose calories, lose weight. Instead of saying, I'm not going to eat it, I'm not going to eat it, close your eyes, reframe the chocolate mousse, and imagine, if you will, a cockroach swimming around in that chocolate mousse, lapping it up. And Yum. I assure you, you will <laughs> never have chocolate mousse again for the rest of your life. You know, once you get that image in your head, yeah. I mean, I think Robin does it with pasta. You you, you see it as... Snakes? Big, big I, I like banished white food from my life, uh-huh. and I just, you know, I imagine it being like this glutinous pile of, you know, gel that I don't want to eat. 
or I do other tricks with money. So I um, I did have a bad Uber habit of taking an Uber to work every day, and I knew exactly how much the Uber cost to go back and forth to my office. And so now I like to take the Metro. I live in Washington, so I take the Metro. And so I always load on my Metro card the amount of money that I would spend in a day going back and forth in Uber, and I look to see, like, how many days that lasts me, taking the Metro back and forth, and I feel so righteous and good. And every time, you know, in Washington, when you put your card through the Metro reader, it, it tells you how much money you have left. Yeah, it does it lasts, that here in New York, right? too. It lasts a long time. The, the, the <laughs> concept of reframing with money is, it's it's interesting. I mean, I did a, I did a segment on today where we stacked up cups of coffee and said, okay, you really want to buy that shirt, but you have to have your morning coffee. So how many cups of coffee is, you know, is do you want that shirt as much as you want 30 days worth of coffee? Yeah, I've seen the studies that you've done like that. And I think they're always fascinating when you think about, you know, having that star, just, just eliminate the Starbucks every day and you end up, you know, yeah. thousands of dollars. Thousands of dollars <laughs> or don't eliminate the Starbucks if Starbucks is what makes you happy. But exactly. figure out what, what sort of drives you. I want to talk in a second about your new phases because you've both moved on from from advertising and and you're doing different things and it's it's terrific. But let me just tell you for a second about how the Her Money podcast came to be. Um, it came out of a brainstorming session that I had with a few of the top women at Fidelity. We were we were thinking about ways that we could get more women talking about money like we're doing right now, how to save it and invest it and put together a plan for the future. And somebody said, podcasts. And there are so few podcasts for women, by women. We were all very excited about having conversations with smart, interesting guests and answering questions from listeners and talking about why money can be so emotional and so frustrating. And I'm thrilled that Fidelity was willing to work with me to bring her money to life. For more financial resources, our listeners can always check out fidelity.com slash it's time. We are here with two incredible women, smart, interesting guests, Linda Kaplan-Thaler and Robin Koval. You're, you're, you've managed to retain your partnership. You're still writing books together, but you've both moved on to do some very, very interesting things. Robin, let me start with you. Tell us a little bit about the Truth Campaign. Well, sure. So two years ago, um, I left advertising. I left the for-profit world. I left New York, which is my home. I grew up there to go to Washington and run uh, an organization that is now called the Truth Initiative. And we're the people behind the Truth Campaign, which is the most successful uh, youth tobacco prevention program out there. Lots of people know it. And, you know, it was a huge – I mean, talk about grit. It was incredibly scary. Uh, to take this leap off the ledge. Here I was. I'd had this, you know, wonderful long career in, in advertising. But I, I think it was also, it's important. Um, we have, um, uh, a chapter in the book called No Expiration Date, right? It's really important, no matter where you are in your career, to always, you know, push yourself a little bit, have a new chapter, leap off the ledge. Um, and I couldn't be happier. The Truth Campaign has been doing incredibly well when um, it first started. Imagine this. In the uh, in 2000, 
23% of young people smoked cigarettes. That's almost a quarter of the population of, of young people. Now, only 7% do. So we've had tremendous success. And, you know, our, our mission is, you know, to achieve a culture where youth and young adults reject tobacco. And I'm very optimistic that we're going to do it. You know, my kids, and, and I've got two in college, think that smoking cigarettes is worse than pretty much anything and and you know there are there are other i'm sure drugs of choice that kids turn to we hope they don't but cigarettes are just they're not going there and in the same way they would not dream of getting in a car and not buckling their seatbelt like it's that ingrained and that's really the impact of social change marketing um, and communication, which is what we're trying to do. So you really can change the world. It doesn't happen overnight, but it's um, it's unbelievably rewarding to have this opportunity. That's fantastic. And Linda, you're out speaking to groups of women? I'm out speaking to anybody who wants to listen, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it started out, you know, talking about grit to great because we really, we really just have such a belief that people – are, are, are in some ways stymied because they think they don't, they're not special enough to become successful, and it's so not true. Uh, Michael Jordan couldn't get into his high school varsity basketball team, and Colin Powell is a C minus student. Steven Spielberg got rejected from film school three times. People don't realize how ordinary these extraordinary people were. So I've been talking, we're both, Rob and I both have been, but you know, talking to businesses, corporations, and actually, I'm speaking a lot to colleges now. Well, I know that this book has has resonated with parents. Be- before we um, started taping today, I was I was telling Linda and Robin a story about my daughter who spent the weekend sick as a dog in her um, dorm room at Syracuse, and and I got a phone call, and and you know this poor kid has pink eye in both eyes. She's got a bronchial infection. She wants her mommy, and I'm I'm worried that I didn't raise a resilient kid. Well, you know, a a wonderful therapist once said to me, uh, and by the way, I'm sure you're an extraordinary parent. Well, yeah, uh, but you she, know, we, we all we all do our best. That's that's what I you think do your when best. it comes you know, to parenting. And, but she had a great line for me, and she said, "Don't worry, whatever you don't teach her, life will teach her." And it's true, you know. And we see this with millennials; many of them come into the workforce, and it's. And and they're well-meaning and they're hardworking, but you know, after two months, it's like, why didn't I get a promotion? I've I've been on time every day. They go, no, you get this other thing. It's called a salary, right. and you get that <laughs> twice a month. And I get parents coming up to me, and when I go to colleges, and the kids laugh. The first thing I say to them is, I don't care what your GPA is, I don't care what your SAT score is. I just want to tell you something: you're not that special. And they crack up, and then I explain to them. You know, it's all going to be about the grit that you're going to put into it. And they get it, you know. You know, one of the things that I find about younger people, because they're very interested in in this whole notion of grit, uh, is they do have a lot of guts. They're they're brave. They want to try things. They have a lot of initiative. They have a lot of great ideas. um, And they do, you know, want to um, be able to independently work on projects and things like that. What what they need to develop more of is a little bit of the resiliency, right, how to pick yourself up and that tenacity. And I do think that has a lot to do with, as a generation, how I know I raised my daughter and Jean is your 
you're talking about. Your daughter is, you know, that that helicopter parenting school, which has, of course, been totally debunked and a big failure. The whole self-esteem movement telling kids they're special and the participation trophies yep. didn't really do them a big favor. And and so maybe, you know, this is a generation that's a little bit behind the curve in that regard. But I do think that they will ultimately be very successful. They're just going to have to kind of learn it on the job, so to speak. So we promised listeners some grit builders. No matter what age you are, whether you're a millennial, whether you're 50 and looking to transition into the next phase of your life, I think having more grit is a good thing. So best tips? Well, first I'm going to give one that's going to sound really silly, and it's for adults and kids. And it was told to us by a Navy SEAL, make your bed. You have to start off your day by making your bed. And why this is important is because you have to start off with an accomplishment. It gives you the endorphin release. So you walk out the door and you've accomplished something. I have to say that I've always made my bed in the morning. Um, I never knew why. Um, it's been a little uncomfortable because many times my husband is still sleeping in it <laughs> and he wakes up and he's a human burrito. But besides that, um, it also teaches you to do small things perfectly. And when you do small things perfectly, you can go on to do the big things perfectly. So Gretchen Rubin was one of our um, earlier guests on this podcast, mm-hmm. and she said the same thing. She said, make your bed. And and because, not because of, of the reasons that you just gave, but because making your bed makes you happier. It's it's a happiness booster. And I, I've always made my bed, too. It, 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 I can't think in a room where the bed is not made. And since I often work in my bedroom, I have to make the bed. So helps me get a good start to my yep. day. And if, by the way, you've had a terrible day and everything has gone wrong, if you come home and your bed is made, at least one thing has gone right. That, yes, <laughs> exactly. absolutely. Um, another one is, um, I like to call it the 30-minute rule. Um, you know, everyone is always telling you, don't spend too much time on something. Uh, you know, we're always multitasking. But to me, the 30-minute rule is work 30 minutes longer on a project. Invest 30 minutes more time than you think you need to in something. Because what that does is it makes you a little bit of an over-preparer. Ah. And being an over-preparer is not about doing more work than you need to, but it's about taking out all the fear that comes with going into have that talk with your boss about a raise or the interview for the new job or whatever it is. Because when you take that fear out, when you're over-prepared for something, even if you never get asked that question, what you're communicating to the other person is, I'm confident. Think of Hillary Clinton in the Benghazi hearings, and you'll know what the and word that binder, oh, and you'll know what the word over prepare means. <laughs> Fantastic! All right, our our Proust questionnaire. It's it's our free form Proust questionnaire. But we ask everybody this question: Power, fame, love, money, in rank order for you, Linda. Love, 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 love. love oh, love. sorry. <laughs> and Robin. Oh, well, I guess I have to give you now a, now a, a different answer. answer than that one. Uh, love first, without, without question, um, because without that, I don't think we get any of those other things in life. Uh, power, love, fame, money. Uh, power. I think women don't grab enough power. Um, I think we're afraid of it sometimes, so I'm going to go for that. And then... Uh, oh boy. I think money. I think you do, you do need to prioritize it. Fame, hey, it's nice if you get it, but. That's fantastic. And where can we find you? 
Uh, well, let's see. You can find the book on grittogreat.com and on Facebook as well. You can find me, uh, Robin underscore Koval, K-O-V-A-L, uh, on Twitter. And uh, if you're interested in the Truth Campaign, you can find that at truthinitiative.org. Uh, my Facebook, uh, you can find me under Linda K. Dot Thaler, T-H-A-L-E-R. Don't forget the dot. Uh, Twitter, I would be at Linda Thaler 2. That's T-H-A-L-E-R. And uh, if you want to reach out to me, I'm open with my email, and my, my company email is Linda at ThalerProductions.com. Love to hear from people. You're a brave woman. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you both for doing this today. It was a total pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. So Kelly Holgren is with me in the studio. Kelly's been on my team now. It's, it's almost three years, Almost right? three years. I can't believe it. I'm going to have to give you another raise. Sounds good to me. <laughs> Sounds really good. She's a, she's the associate producer of this show, but she works on all of my projects. And she's been rounding up questions for us to talk about this week. What you got? Yes. Our first question comes from Facebook. Sandy is asking, where can I find lost or forgotten money? Ah, good question. Kelly is smiling because she knows that the last time I went through this exercise personally, I found over a thousand dollars. Incredible. 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 And you should do this every so often because what happens is if you signed up for utilities on an apartment and then left that apartment, um, you might have left your deposit behind. If you had a credit with a store that you forgot about, that can end up in the in the pile of lost money. The website to go to is missingmoney.com, missingmoney.com. And you just sort of follow the breadcrumbs through your state, and you'll figure out very quickly um, just by putting your information in. If you've got anything waiting for you, a couple of just quick tips. If you had a maiden name and a married name, put both of them in. If you lived in more than one place, check multiple states. And if you've got any older relatives that you think aren't checking for themselves, go ahead and check for them, too. Is there a rule of thumb on how far back you should go? Like, let's say you've moved around a lot. Like, is there a number of years you should date back and plug in the addresses for? You know, I, I don't know off the top of my head. I would say, you know, easily go back 10. You mm. might even want to go back go back 20. I, I found some money at one point for one of my kids that had been uh, sitting there for, for quite for quite a while. Um, wow. So, yeah. So kids, check. too. Kids, everybody. Okay. Go ahead and double check. Great. Our next question is from Anne-Marie on jeanchatsky.com. She writes, Jean, how do I raise and maintain a good credit score as a stay-at-home mom? My husband has all of our bills, loans, and credit cards in his name. I can't seem to get any loans or credit cards because I don't have an income. I am concerned about if something were to happen to him and I would need to have a good credit score but have no or bad credit. Yeah, I get it, Anne-Marie. I understand why you're concerned. If you've got one wage earner in the family and all the credit is in that person's name, the other person could really be left in a lurch if they're, they got divorced or if somebody passed away. You want to make sure that both people have credit in their name and that that credit is in good standing. So a couple of ways to build the credit. One, you can take one of those credit cards in your spouse's name and have yourself added as an authorized user. Call the credit card company first and make sure that they will report on behalf of authorized users to the credit bureaus. They don't all do this, but if you're looking to build credit for a college student, you can you can do it this way as well. And then look into something called a secured credit card, which is 
essentially just a credit card where you make a deposit with the bank that issues you the card. And however much money you deposit becomes your credit limit. You use the card, you pay it off, you use it, you pay it off. You do that for generally 18 to 24 months, and that card will become a regular credit card. So two ways to go about it, authorized user and secured card. Next, we have a question from Twitter, at A.L. Davis tweeted us asking, I want to help veterans. How do I tell if a charity is legitimate? Also a really, really good question, but it also allows me to put in a plug for my military money book. I I wouldn't plug my own book, but this one happens to be free. So um, if you go to genechatsky.com, I wrote a book specifically for veterans called Operation Money. You can download it for free, and, and uh, it has a lot of the information that you're asking about in the book. But making sure that you've got a charity that's legit as your beneficiary is pretty simple. You want to go to the websites of Charity Navigator or GuideStar or the Better Business Bureau and type in the name of the charity that you are looking at. Those are the websites that are sort of the the gatekeepers for legitimacy in charities. So they'll tell you what you need to know about that particular organization, including a look at the program ratio, which takes you a step beyond legitimacy. There are charities that are legitimate, but that aren't particularly effective in how they use money. And when you give money to a charity, you want to make sure that a decent chunk of what you're giving goes to help the underlying cause rather than goes to run the organization. So I like to see a program ratio that's at least 70% or higher. Makes sense. And where specifically can you find out that ratio? So all of these sites have it. Uh, Charity Navigator, GuideStar, Better Business Bureau, or go to the website of the charity itself. What you're looking for is the Form 990. That's the IRS form where all of this information is found. It may very well be there. Thank you. And we want to hear more from you. Please tweet us your questions at Jean Chatsky with the hashtag HerMoneyPodcast. We're also on Facebook and at JeanChatsky.com. Thanks, Kelly. And now it's time for our weekly Thrive segment. When was the last time that you changed jobs or even thought about it? According to research from our sponsor, Fidelity, even though 86% of millennials say that they are happy at work, nearly half are either looking for or open to the next opportunity. And it's not just an issue for millennials. As we heard from our guests, Linda and Robin, who both just made a switch, almost a third of people age 40 to 59 plan to change careers in the next five years, according to a survey from USA Today and Life Reimagined. The big question question is, how do you know if that new offer is good enough to jump for? Well, let me just tell you, it is not all about the money. More millennials are interested in improving their quality of life and doing more purposeful work and finding a more enjoyable company culture than they are in making money. In fact, they said they take an average $7,600 pay cut for a better work-life balance. I got to say, I don't know about that. I'd rather see you get more money and a better quality of life. So here are a few suggestions for evaluating that next offer. First, 
Think about total compensation, not just the salary. What's the match on the retirement plan? What's the share of health insurance that the company pays for? Those things represent some real money. Next, look at the cost of making a switch. Will you have to relocate? And how much will that both cost and impact your cost of living? Are you losing or benefiting over the long term? Finally, don't, don't, don't take the first offer. Most people, and again, not just most millennials, don't feel comfortable negotiating and just accept what's put on the table the first time. This is particularly true of women, and it costs us over a half million dollars in total compensation over the course of our careers. So repeat after me. Can you do better? Those are the four most important words to take into any salary negotiation, but back them up with some evidence showing that you would likely earn more money elsewhere. So to wrap it up, it's not just about salary. It's about total comp. Make sure you take into consideration the costs of making a switch and do not take the first offer. Ask, can you do better? Or say... I was thinking of, and then name a number a good 5 to 10% higher. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Robin and Linda for a terrific conversation. I hope you guys will come back again soon. If you all like what you're hearing, please subscribe to our show at iTunes. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. Our music is provided by Track Tribe. Our show comes to you through PRX. And join us next week when we'll be talking with money guru Dave Ramsey, who I'm sure most of you know, but who has dominated the bestseller list for many, many years now with his book, Financial Peace, and his daughter, Rachel Cruz, who is embarking on a career of her own in personal finance. We'll also take your questions, and of course, we'll have a great way for you to thrive. Thanks for listening, and tune in then.